Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. And I want to stress that we are pursuing all options. Canadian flights have started evacuating people from Sudan, but others have been leaving by land, and one Canadian tells of his decision to flee the violence. Clearing the air on gun buybacks. A group representing firearm sellers says it's a reluctant partner of the government. Their president tells us more. There's concern in Quebec about the new federal plan for official languages and what it means for English and French. We'll hear a response from Canada's Minister of Official Languages. And... I believe that the Electoral Boundary Commission is about to make a major mistake. A battle over boundaries. Ontario's new map would cut out a Toronto riding. MP Michael Cotto talks about the campaign to save Don Valley East. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson, and for Michael Serapio. The government says Canadian flights from Sudan have started. Two evacuation flights brought nearly 120 people to Djibouti earlier today, but there's no word yet on how many were Canadian citizens. And officials say the planes were not full because of the situation on the ground. Back in this country, the questions continue on Canada's readiness for dealing with the crisis. That first flight of the Canadian Armed Forces that has now left Sudan is an example of the planning that has been going on behind the scenes over the past number of days. And as I mentioned, we have 200 CAF deployed to the region to assist with this line of effort and to continue supporting Canadians. And I want to stress that we are pursuing all options. The situation is extremely dangerous in Sudan and key civilian infrastructure is necessary for any evacuation of non-combatants. Our main preoccupation in terms of operation at this point is to make sure that the ceasefire, which is technically ending tonight, is extended. So we're reaching out to many uh, countries and, and, and I'm reaching out to many of my counterparts uh, to get updates about the negotiations and to make sure that that is the case and we hope for the best. Well, let's hear from a Canadian who was able to flee Sudan by land on his own. Hisham Mohammed lives in Welland, Ontario. He was visiting family in Sudan and decided to leave before his scheduled flight. And he's with me tonight from Aswan, Egypt. Hisham, good to see you. Glad you're safe. Uh, first, tell me what drove your decision to leave Sudan? Uh, actually, uh, after the third day, I went uh, to get some, uh, tried to secure some water. As you know, there uh, was no water, no power. And we went into encounter with the military people. And uh, uh, unfortunately, they shot people next to us in the other car. Uh, that incident just got into my head and I had to leave. All right. So you make that decision that you, you need to leave Sudan. Tell me about the kind of communication you had with Canadian officials at the embassy. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get any communication with the embassy. So after I made several calls with them, uh, was the same answer. There is no plan, nothing. So I make the move and uh, 
I uh, I made plan until now. I didn't get any contact with the embassies. I don't even know if I am still in Sudan or left. The only email I got from them was back then when I registered with the embassy. I got a confirmation email, and that was it. After that, uh, until now, I didn't get any kind of emails or phone calls from them. So tell me what the evacuation was like for you then. Uh, given that experience with the Canadian embassy, you're deciding you're going to try and leave the country by land. Take us through that experience. It, it was a horrible and it's, it's, it was very dangerous. Uh, because back then I had was no any fire seas or anything. So I had to go from, from checkpoint to checkpoint and from checkpoint to checkpoint, just, you know, hoping for the better. So nothing is going to happen. It's going to be smooth. They're going to let me just move. And uh, I was uh, first to start with a small car, which, you know, I took it from Khartoum North and uh, trying to cross the bridge to Underman. So in one side, there is a military group that's positioning the, the bridge. The other one was. So in my way, I thought, you know, I see burning tanks. Uh, vehicles, military vehicles, and uh, in one point, uh, this was a fight uh, going in front of us. So with the tank uh, and our uh, tank missiles, you know, are all kind of uh, of uh, machines, guns, and stuff like this. So it was really dangerous to go through. All right, one last question for you. You know, there's been a lot of talk here in Canada about Canada's readiness to respond to this crisis. You were there on the ground. You've told us uh, what you saw, what you experienced. Do you think the Canadian government took heed of the warning signs early enough about what was happening in Sudan? No, unfortunately not. Uh, was nothing from the Canadian government side. And uh, I think they could have done much better even if early on they didn't respond fast, you know, at the second or the third day, they should be on calling people and, you know, give them advice what to do here or there. But uh, unfortunately, as I said, was uh, nothing from this, from the Canadian sides. All right, Hisham Mohammed, you have made it uh, to Egypt. Uh, so that's good news. Thanks so much for joining me here on Primetime Politics. Okay, thanks for having me. Let's follow up now on the federal buyback program for banned firearms. Phase one will focus on businesses and their inventory, and the government has contracted with an association of gun sellers. But that group calls itself a reluctant partner of the government. Wes Winkle is president of the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association. Mr. Winkle, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. I want to start by clearing the air on your group's role in this buyback program. Your group, the CSAAA, tweeted that you haven't collected or shared any info with the government and that you haven't received any compensation. So let's just start with uh, whether you can clarify what your work is with the federal government on these banned firearms and what funding is involved. Yes, for sure. So we uh, entered into discussions last year with the federal government uh, regarding the possibility of uh, representing our industry in the industry buyback initiative from the government. Um, you know, the, we were looking to liaison between 
the manufacturers, distributors, and retailers, and the federal government to try to help administer uh, the buyback program as far as collecting data, uh, negotiating process and prices. Uh, that was our role. And um, we advise them that we're volunteer board of directors. We don't really have the administrative staff to deal with that. So we said that if we were going to hire and have to get some people in, involved, that we would need a little bit of budget. And that's where the contract came in to assist us with the administrative uh, expenses of administering this type of uh, agreement. And that's around uh, $700,000? I, I max to a maximum. Uh, at this point, we have not received any payment and uh, it is our understanding that that's the maximum amount of budget allocation we have. All right, now the public safety minister says he's pleased with this arrangement. And I wanna play you what Marco Mendicino told our Michael Serapio yesterday and then get your reaction. Yes. It is a program that does not have precedent. It is a program that is national in scale. And it is a program that will require a good faith partnerships within industry, which is why we reached out to the CSAAA, but as well with law enforcement and with gun owners themselves. And we're going to do this work in good faith with all of those folks. All right. So the minister says the government uh, signed a contract in good faith. But how do you and other dealers feel about this arrangement? Well, it's, it's a real catch-22, and it's a tough situation we're in. Uh, you know, we have our backs up against the wall, and the reason is is that these firearms were prohibited back in May of 2020, and our, our membership uh, vehemently opposes the prohibition in general. We don't believe that, uh, th that the program is the best use of tax dollars. We obviously don't believe in the prohibition. We believe that these firearms were uh, imported and distributed safely throughout our community uh, to licensed and vetted individuals. So the problem now that we have is that these this inventory has been tied up in our businesses for uh, three years since the prohibition, and we're paying to store and insure these firearms. And at some point, we need to have movement on the file. Um, so the discussion amongst the industry was we're better to uh, to be a part of the discussions rather than being dictated the parameters around uh, how the, the program moves forward. Um, the program has many challenges, uh, you know, just uh, to react to Minister Mendocino yesterday, uh, he said a national program, but right now we have the Saskatchewan and Alberta Firearms Act that prohibits the collection and destruction of these items. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of challenges and uh, and we're happy to have a, a rational conversation around it. Um, even though we're not happy with the legislation or with the order in council, we still do believe that uh, we have to follow the law of the land. And even though we don't always agree with it, it still is the law of the land. And uh how do we uh, move forward in a, in a reasonable manner? Okay, I do want to ask you, though, about how many weapons we're talking about here, how many uh, the dealers have firearms on their shelves not being sold because they're banned. The minister's uh, saying that there's about 11,000 guns, parts, and components that have been identified. Is that the number? It absolutely is not. And we had a conversation yesterday with the minister after those numbers were put forward. The numbers that he's referring to are the amount of firearms that are registered to the Canadian businesses across Canada. Uh, and that number we do believe to be somewhere around 11,000 uh, total. Where we really see this program balloon, and what's a little disingenuous is that there's many non-restricted firearms, which of course do not require registration in the country of Canada, that are on dealer shelves that were prohibited. There was 1,800 makes and models prohibited, and many of those were non-restricted. And those items have a much higher volume of sales, and therefore a much higher volume of inventory across the country. 
So even though there's 11,000 registered that are easy to identify because they know exactly where they are, this is where we come in as far as trying to figure out what the dealers have on their shelves in the uh, non-restricted category. And that number will definitely uh, dwarf the 11,000. Okay, and I want to ask you about the financial aspect of this for the dealers themselves. Yesterday, your group also tweeted concern with uh, the way that those firearms might be valued or appraised in terms of the buyback program. What is the amount that you're expecting the government to pay dealers here? Well, this is the thing. When you're dealing with 1,800 makes and models, you can imagine if, if you're not familiar with firearms, you can kind of go into a car situation. Uh, but obviously, a Ferrari is not worth the exact same amount as a, as a Honda Civic. And we have the same situation in the firearms. We have 18,000 unique makes and models, all which had a different retail price. And initially, the government was just trying to do a category saying, if you have a, you know, a mid-sized sedan, you're going to get this much money. And if you have a sports car, you're getting this much money. Well, uh, you know, we've indicated that there's no way that's a fair process. And all that's going to mean is that either uh, people get way overcompensated and taxpayers take it on the nose or uh, people get way undercompensated, which is, of course, our great concern. So, um, you know, we have been willing to offer our expertise to let the people know what these firearms are actually worth. Uh, you know, in some of the situations and some of these safari guns that were, you know, safari hunting rifles that were per that were prohibited, the values can be very, very high. Some of these firearms are sell in the tens and twenties of thousands of dollars or higher. So. Um, there's a great deal of discrepancy amongst what these guns are worth, and we're trying to just uh, provide our expertise as to the value of these guns and to the, the procedure going forward. Uh, it's one of those situations where uh, we've complained in the past about not being consulted, so now that we are being consulted, we want to offer our expertise. All right, we'll have to leave it for there. Uh, Wes Winkle, president of the CSAAA, thanks again for joining me. Thank you very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. The federal government will spend $4 billion over the next five years on official languages, including francophone immigration and more minority language education. But there are concerns in Quebec about how the new plan will protect English and French. So let's bring in the federal minister responsible for official languages. Jeanette Petipa-Taylor is with me right now in studio. Minister, it's good to see you. Thanks for the invitation. So I want to start with, uh, with the Bloc Québécois and what your provincial counterpart in Quebec have been saying. They say there's not enough in this plan for protecting the French language in that province. What's your reaction? So first and foremost, I think we have to take a step back. Last year, I had a cross-country consultation, met with thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast to ask them what they wanted to see in this action plan. These are frontline service providers and Canadians that really live and breathe official languages. And the four priority areas that they had was Im francophone immigration, making sure that we had more inf um, uh, investments in education, and also finally um, making sure that the service providers had more funding and that the federal government continued to play a leadership role. I think we have to recognize that in the action plan that we've provided, we've met all, those are the four uh, priority pillars. I think as well we have to recognize that in Canada we have two official languages, both French and in English. But French is the only language that is in decline in this country. And if we look at the statistics that came out last year through Stats Canada last August, we could see that the demographic weight of the francophone population is declining. And that's why the federal government, in our action plan, we are doing all that we can to make sure that we address and that we promote the French language within this country. Now, 
um, the Anglophones in Quebec are the official um, minority in Quebec. And we also met with them during the planning of the official languages. And what we heard from Anglophones in Quebec were three things. Number one, they wanted to have uh, assistance and employment in order to find work, the skills that they needed. And that includes French language training and also to support the vitality of their community by uh, supporting the arts and culture. And in this action plan, we are specifically doing that. So I guess I want to be clear, we are not investing in English uh, in Quebec. We are assisting the, Frank, the, the Anglophone community in Quebec with the skill sets that they require in order to enter the job market and to thrive. Right. I do want to ask you, though, about your, your counterpart in the government of Quebec who says money for the English language community you speak of should be going to protect French instead, that that $138 million shouldn't go to any groups that are uh, taking the province to court over its opposing Quebec language laws. But I think, once again, if we make sure that Anglophones in Quebec are learning a second language, and that being French, I think when we're promoting and you know teaching French to more Canadians, that is actually, we all should be celebrating that. I think we have to also remember, um, having both French and English in our country is a really a comparative advantage for a country. And we want to make sure that our English-speaking Quebecers will have access to the services that they need in order for them to thrive and to be able to find work. And investing in, in French language training, I think is actually a good thing. Now, we have heard some of those English language groups in Quebec are concerned that you may have to negotiate with the province on assigning those funds and that they don't think this might end well for their community. So they're saying without some big changes, for instance, to your Bill C-13, that this plan offers them little. So what is it uh, specifically in this plan for those communities? Well, once again, as I've indicated, when we've met with them during the consultation, the three items that the Anglophones in Quebec had asked us for was with respect to assistance and employment assistance, and that included French language training and also some investments when it came to supporting the vitality of their community in the area of arts and culture. And if you look in our official, um, in our action plan, we are absolutely addressing those priorities. The other issue that came out as well uh, was with respect to making sure uh, that the court challenges program remained. Uh, and if we do remember during the Harper years, that uh, that program had been abolished completely. And Francophones and Anglophones had asked us to reinstate that program. It was reinstated in 2018, and it remains. Okay, so let's broaden this then to the whole country beyond Quebec. You've said uh, this new plan overall is focused on results, and part of that is getting more Francophone immigrants into French language communities across Canada to those minority language communities. Now, the government has said that it met its target last year for that uh, number. So going forward then, what are the actual results that you want to see uh, in numerical terms, in statistical terms about that kind yeah. of immigration? So the investments that we're going to be making in the area of immigration, number one, is to repair the demographic trend because it's going downhill, as I've indicated. So we need to make sure that, that we repair that. In order to do that, we're going to be moving forward with a Francophone immigration policy in order to make sure that we can attract and retain Francophones, not only in Quebec, but in regions, as you indicated, all across the country. To me, though, it's more than just putting a number. We have to make sure that we have the services in place in order to retain and to really welcome these folks uh, within our communities. So in the investments that we've announced uh, in the action plan, more monies have been put aside in that resettlement services part of it. Also, money has been put in place, again, for French language services to make sure that if people don't know French, they'll be able to learn French as a second language. And finally, we also have to make sure not only to have the numbers, but we have to make sure that, again, all of those supports are in place. 
The other thing as well that we heard of during the, uh, the consultation process is that we certainly have a labor force shortage when it comes to French language teachers. So we're putting in place a corridor, an immigration corridor, to attract uh, internationally more francophone teachers in order to come in Canada, settle in Canada, and then from there they'll be able to teach French uh, language to our students. And many parents want to make sure that their kids you know, go to French schools and also daycares and so on. So we want to play our role and uh, being a, a leader in making sure that we make those investments. Okay, we have 30 seconds left. I want to ask you very quickly, though, about that. Does your plan for recruiting uh, Francophone immigrants into those communities conflict at all with Quebec's own plans for recruiting Francophone immigrants to that province? I really think that the, uh, that the federal government and the provincial government, you know, have to work together when it comes to immigration. You know, uh, I think we all, if I look at the, uh, the province of Quebec, they want to make sure that they increase their Francophone immigration numbers, but also provinces uh, across the country as well. I mean, I come from New Brunswick, the only bilingual province in this country. We need to make sure that we address that demographic decline, because if not, we just see the numbers going down and down and down. If we look back in 1971, we had a, a percentage of 6.1% of the population that was francophone outside of Quebec. Now we're up to, um, I think it's 3.3 or 3.5. So we have a lot of catching up that needs to be done uh, in order to address this. Uh, and, you know, people just aren't having the number of kids that they used to. I say, I mean, my mother had 10 children. Uh, most of us have not, you know, contributed to the population growth like my mother. So what, if we're not having as many babies, what we're going to need to do is really focus on immigration. And the other thing as well is making sure that we teach French. Because I can tell you there's a lot of Anglophone parents uh, that want to make sure that their kids, you know, have that second language training. Again, it's a comparative advantage for them, and the federal government needs to play a leadership role. Okay, we have to leave it there. Minister Jeanette Pettipaw-Taylor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Ontario's new federal boundaries would leave the City of Toronto with one less seat in the House of Commons. And the MP for Don Valley East is raising objections about the elimination of that writing and how the decision came to pass. Liberal Member of Parliament Michael Koto is with me now. Mr. Koto, good to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. You know, first, you know, before we get into some of your specific objections, let's situate everyone on what's been happening with Don Valley East. How did the final proposal from Ontario's Electoral Boundary Commission differ from its original plan? Well, the original plan that was uh, presented last year actually expanded the riding of Don Valley East, so it actually grew on the electoral map. And then on February 10th of this year, a new proposal was brought forward uh, based on some of the pressure uh, the Commission must have received through the consultation in Scarborough. But essentially, uh, it ended up dividing the riding into three uh, sections, being absorbed into Don Valley West, uh, Scarborough Centre, and a small piece into, into Scarborough North. And look, it's not shocking when we see an MP oppose their writing getting split up, but you're telling the House Procedure Committee meeting today that uh, this would be a devastating uh, mistake. So, you know, beyond the fact that your seat would disappear in the House, what is the case uh, that you're making for Don Valley East? Well, I've object to the, the process. You know, we have a, a process in place today um, where a proposal can be put forward and uh, community members can speak about it, then a, a final report's put forward and it can drastically shift. That proposal can change so drastically. And uh, because it's the final report, it doesn't allow anyone in the community who's being impacted to actually weigh in on that. And we're talking about electoral boundaries here. This is a fundamental piece of our democracy. 
So what I'm saying at the end of the day is uh, let people have a say, let people weigh in on it. And you know, I recognize the enormous task that the commission has and I respect the work that they do. However, um, they do have the power to an extent a consultation and uh, the recommendations I made to the PROC committee, which is the uh, procedural committee uh, in the House of Commons, that you know, we revisit this entire process because these complaints are not new. They've stemmed uh, as far back as 20 years from our records. So it's time to do something to change the process so it, Im it impacts communities in the future in a more positive way. Right, and so the, the committee, the process, so people understand, the committee will take objections that you and other MPs raise about uh, changes across the country. They'll pass those on to the Boundary Commission, but at the end of the day, they're going to produce that final map. Have, have you had any feedback from the Commission on this beyond their final no, report since you've seen that? And this is, this is part of the problem. So on February 10th, we get a brand new map that's a, really a final document. Uh, there is absolutely no way to consult, to talk to people in the community about it. And the only recourse we have is to go to this committee, which I was given three minutes, um, and uh, in my neighborhood, we received over 500 emails. We had 1,000 people sign petition. There were three consultation uh, meetings, uh, two of, uh, sorry, one of them by a community group called Save DVE and two uh, by my office. You know, we've literally had thousands of interactions of people saying, you know, they want to have their say. They want to be able to talk about this. You're essentially taking a North York riding um, and moving it into a Scarborough uh, riding and disregarding a 100-year-plus border, which was Victoria Park, without any community consultation. All we're saying is we just want to be able to weigh in on the proposal, to have our say, give us that ability to, to speak. So let's, uh, in the time we have left, let's talk a bit about the specifics then of, of what that part of Toronto faces now. The Commission's report said their original proposal faced a lot of criticism for leaving Scarborough underrepresented, that right now Don Valley East has uh, a very low population uh, among all Toronto ridings. And they also say that, you know, when they're working on identifying communities of interest uh, for a riding and how communities come together, you know, they say this can be highly subjective and that they have to look at the whole city and the whole province as they're putting this uh, map together. So based on what they've already said, are you confident that the Commission can heed your arguments? Well, I think, in, in all fairness, any of the arguments that are being made by, the, by Scarborough or, or, or the Commission that it reported on can be applied equally to North York. Um, but the interesting thing is, like, over the last decade, um, and you remember back in 2015, Don Valley East was a big, healthy riding, and the Commission came in uh, and split it in half to create Don Valley North. So uh, 10 years ago, uh, the riding was split. We have communities, the community I grew up in, uh, Flemington Park, which is a, a, an economically challenged neighborhood in many ways, underserviced in many ways. It's been moved three times in a decade if this proposal goes through without people having any say in the future direction. And the other thing that this, uh, these changes do it disregards the boundaries that are traditionally put in place. So for example, the police divisions, you know, the hospital catchment areas, our school catchment areas, not-for-profit organizations. I have the third largest Muslim population uh, in all of Canada. It divides that community. And it takes these old communities, these villages like Victoria Village, Fenside, uh, communities like uh, uh, Don Mills, and it divides these communities. And all we're saying is just pause, use your legislative power as a commission, and hold a second consultation. You have the ability to do this within your legislation. Use the ability to, to run an actual effective consultation, and let's see where we end up. 
People just want to be heard, that's all. And, and, and I just want to finish by saying this. In today's democracy, we have a lot of people who are not buying into the political process because of things like this. And we need to make sure that if we're, if we're putting a commission in place to actually in, embrace and expand democracies by creating better uh, boundaries, let's at least put in place the best practices for consultations so people have their voices heard. All right, one final question then. Uh, you know, the commission says that some of these same arguments that have been made uh, about diversity within the city of Toronto, within your riding, would apply just as much, if not more, to Toronto suburbs where there's been higher growth than inside the city of Toronto. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why the city has lost one riding under uh, the new map. So, you know, in a situation where perhaps your riding is, is maintained or it goes back to that original proposal where Don Valley East uh, is expanded, you know, how does that affect representation for other people in the GTA? Well, it's interesting because if the commission is saying that, um, you know, all the arguments they made, why was their original proposal to impact Scarborough? Like they took the data initially and they analyzed it and they came up with a proposal that impacted Scarborough. All they've done in this situation is listen to the feedback through a proper consultation in Scarborough, and they've just moved the problem to North York. Any of the arguments that have been made in Scarborough can equally apply to North York, especially a community like Flemington Park and Don Mills, which I would say is probably the most diverse and multicultural community in this entire country. Okay, well, we'll certainly be watching for how the commission responds, and we'll see what their final map and those final boundaries ultimately look like. Michael Koto, thanks so much for your time on this. Thank you for the opportunity. And finally tonight, an MP who won't be running in the next federal campaign. That's the NDP's Randall Garrison, who represents Esquimalt Saanich Souk, B.C., and is the current NDP critic for justice and for 2S LGBTQI plus rights. Garrison was first elected in 2011. That's going to be all for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Andrew Thompson, and for all of us at CPAC, thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.